0: So welcome to Space Chats. This week I'm talking to Mark Eubank, Holly Prescott and Joe Lewis. They are all from Otis Dotter. Yes, we are. Sorry. They are all from Otis Dotter, who are bringing Lady Inga to the space in June to July, so the 27th of June to the 8th of July. Hello to you all. How are you doing? Hello.
1: Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having us.
0: Yeah, hi Bethany. Glad to be here. So tell me, where, where are you all zooming in from?
1: Today I'm in Levington Spa in Warwickshire. I'm here in my home office in Walthamstone.
2: Uh, Yeah, and I'm Zooming in from Moseley in South Birmingham, which is where I'm based.
0: Nice. So tell me, how is it all going? Where are we at the moment in the process? Not quite at the rehearsal process, I'm assuming. How's it all going? What's the stage you're all at? Well, we're,
2: we're quite excited at the moment because um, we kick off rehearsals on Sunday. The first one uh, is so. It's for people who are listening. We're on uh, Friday now, so we'll be uh, kicking off with rehearsals uh, in 48 hours.
3: Well, it's been really good because we've had a really quite long leading period this time around. Um, usually we spare about three months in advance of a run to, to start rehearsals. And we hopefully got it down to an hour, hopefully, because <laughs> um, this is our... Tenth year of, of doing this in Totter, and it's our sixth play, I think. Yes, yeah, sixth six. I have to remember sixth play.
1: Well, sixth production because six there's production. been a. This is the second time we've done this play.
3: Yes, yeah. This piece, Lady Inga, is uh, we did this first in twenty thirteen, which is ten years ago now, and it was pretty much our first venture really. So it's really exciting to come full circle a decade later, uh, and stage this production again really with a completely different cast, um, but retaining our. Nils Steinson, who is with us today, Joe Lewis, who will be thinking, uh, reprising this role from 10 years ago.
0: So let's start at the beginning. So the company, Holly and Mark, you co-founded it and you're both still running it. Tell me firstly about the name. I'm very curious about the name and also what brought you together and made you want to start making this kind of
2: theatre. Could I say um, a little bit about what how we came to it? And then Mark, if you want to explain the name, because it's very lady and irrelevant actually. So we go, we go way back. Uh, I, I'm shocked to think that Mark and I've been friends for uh best part of 30 years yeah. now. And uh, I can see uh, Joe Joe puts his hand over oh, I'm it.
1: laughing because that would have been when I was a toddler.
2: Yeah. Joe, Joe, not,
1: <laughs> not even walking yet. <laughs>
2: yeah, Joe hasn't racked up quite as many years as we have yet. But the, the story goes way back to, so I would say, kind of the year 2000, Mark and I were studying uh, A-level drama and theatre studies together. And I think it's a story that really talks about the power of being able to have cultural experiences when you're a youngster, because we had an excellent drama theatre studies teacher who would think nothing of bundling us into the back of a, a, a minibus and uh, taking us out to Theatre Cluid in, in North Wales to to see a doll's house and to see ghosts. And that was how we got introduced to uh, you know the the gripping drama of, of Ibsen uh in the first place as teenagers and it's really stuck with us and it's been a it's been something that no matter kind of you know what holidays we've been on what pubs we've been quaffing in the the the, the conversations always somehow come back to you know we were it comes back to Ibsen and why we love it and why we would always come come back to him so Those are the the roots of it, really, and exploring why did it resonate uh, with us so much and coming to realise that, yes, there's this Ibsen canon that we feel we see on stage a lot. But what was before that? What was beneath that? What could we uncover that might be able to give an audience, a little bit more insight into where Ibsen's more later, more famous female characters came from, uh, in the very origins of his writing. So that's where that's how we emerged, I guess. Mark, do you want to say a little bit more?
3: Yeah, it's um we were so, like like Colleague says, we're very lucky to see so much Ibsen when we're teenagers. I mean yeah, we didn't really grow up on Shakespeare, we grew up on Ibsen, which is, which is fantastic, really. And I feel terrible now because I live in Warwickshire, you know, home of Shakespeare. <laughs> but alas, the second most famous playwright in the world, Ibsen, uh, is, is how we came to start Otis there back in 2013. Following on from what Holly said, we, you know, we had a discussion one day just, thinking, you know, why don't we just rent a theatre and, and put on stage our own Ibsen plays? We aren't seeing these early Ibsen plays. Why are we not seeing these early Ibsen plays? And back in 2013, I got a deposit down on my credit card, rented the a theatre, and, you know, we we did a, a week's run of Lady Inga. And that's actually, Gospel Circle, that's how we got our name, because Lady Inga's maiden name was Dotter. We use an anglicised spelling of it, but um, her maiden name is Dotter. so uh, 10 years later, we're still using her name. So it's a, quite a nice full Circle 10 years later, and, and uh, Dotter are producing the second adaptation of this wonderful play.
0: Yes, and this play so rarely performed. Why this play?
3: What was interesting about this play in particular, it's it's quite Shakespearean in its in its manner, really. We have Lady Inga, who is a mythical. Um she spoke about before she arrives on stage. It's based on a true story in, in the fifteen hundreds. Lady Inga was real. Her daughter Elena was real, Nils Lika was real. And it's fascinating because it's grounded in reality. It's a dramatization of what actually happened. So we're not telling a history story uh, by any stretch, but it's it's fascinating because it's based on real people. When we first undertook to to research and go into the depths of, of the play and its history, um, we spoke with the Royal Norwegian Embassy back in 2013 to explore a little bit more detail about what was happening at this time, a bit more of Norwegian history, and the Royal Norwegian Embassy sponsored us to go and visit Lady Inga's castle. So myself and, and uh, a colleague went out to Brekstad in Norway, uh, went to explore Ostrotborgen, which is Lady Inga's actual castle. We spent, you know, many hours with the curator talking about her life, her children, the the, the context of of Norway at that time, and it really kind of informed a, a you know a, a wonderful way to to start the rehearsal process, knowing so much about the characters as they existed, um, in Ibsen's mind before he wrote the play, but also how Ibsen may have used those facts and turned them into a particular um, tragedy that he did. Um, so as far as knowing plays, we really know that we really know this play um in terms of the the history of the characters. Um it's 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 fascinating as well because it's it's written about in 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 a lot of academic texts There's, it's it's a juvenile piece of Ibsen. Ibsen wrote this when he was 27. He wasn't the fully formed playwright, you know, that he's defined by his last 12 plays, he's not defined by his 27 play canon. He's defined by his last 12 plays, really. So this is one of his early ones, third or four. And it's it's fascinating as it wasn't um, <laughs> one of his uh, best works. It's fascinating for other reasons. For example, the ending. The ending is written about in in uh, in a lot of the academic literature. It ends on on a real twist. Um, I, I don't, I'm being very careful. No to spoilers. Realize, no 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 spoilers. <laughs> uh, it ends on such a twist that it makes it very atypical piece of theatre. And. It's, it's that that really drew us to it because it's there's, there's no conclusion. At the end of the play, people are shocked and they remain shocked as they leave the auditorium. There is no happy tying up of the story. I'm not going to say happy or sad ending, but there's no tying up of the story at the end. It just something happens and the play ends.
1: Yeah, and the play ends sh- in the middle of the climax.
3: Yes, yeah. It's your kind of left hanging at the edge of your seat. And we thought at the time, I know I remember having these discussions so much, um, saying it just leaves you bereft at the end of the play. It makes the audience feel something. So it's punched the stomach, because it's, it, you don't expect it not to be solved. You don't expect it just to leave it hanging there. And we found that absolutely fascinating uh, to the extent that our next production, which was Got Lessing's Blessings, Amelia and Golotti, was actually compared to Lady Inga because of its shock ending. And um, so that became our kind of raison d'etre to, to put on these plays that that, Ended in such a manner that, that just left audiences absolutely shocked because we really wanted audiences to feel something, um, and we know it's juvenile fiction and, and it's not as well put together as, as uh, Lessing's *Mili Galotti*, but it it, it leaves the audiences with the punch in the stomach at the end. Mm. Quite, quite violent imagery there, but I, it's just it's the way to express the kind of emptiness you feel inside at the end of this play. Mm. We'd like to bring in Holly there, sorry.
2: Yeah, and there is very there's very little sense making. It is how I would dis- describe it at, at the end. Which again, it's difficult to comment without giving too much away. But I feel it's a, that that you know the, the, this play's been likened so many times. To say that it, it, it's a melodrama, but but that lack of sense making that it gives the audience at the end, I think, is actually quite a realistic provocation of strong feelings of grief and things like that, where people do strive for meaning and strive for meaning, strive for reasons, strive for 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 sense making and and never get there, which is something that I feel like this play replicates.
0: I find what you're saying very interesting because I but very different writers to to Ibsen, but I have favourite writers who similarly everyone knows The sort of canon famous works, which are thought of as the best. And then you go on your journey and you find these less than perfect, perhaps. And as you say, often earlier or sometimes later works, which have been a little bit forgotten. And then getting passionate about those and trying to bring out the interesting thing from those and put that on stage. I think, yeah, I think what you're doing is is fascinating. I understand we don't want to go too much into the play and what it's about. We want people to come and see it. And you've given us a lovely sense of the female character and the historical context for this. But Joe, could you tell me a little bit about your character in particular? You're associate producer on this, but you're also acting. So just as a, as a little snippet, could you tell us about who you're playing? Uh,
1: so my character is Neil Stinson and is uh, one of the few characters in the play who's actually not a historical figure, which sort of you know it gives us a bit more leeway and it's quite fun uh but comes in towards the end of the the first half of the play there's this like mysterious guest in the castle and it's like who is this and there's a lot of like i myself as the character don't really know who i am or where i come from so i've sort of been brought up on lies and so that sort of unravels throughout the play as to who i really am and it has like a big impact on the story and i was was, uh thinking about this before about how it sort of relates to a lot of things that are very popular nowadays which maybe weren't as big when we first started it so like when we first did it in 2013 so like since then like i mean i know it just started but it hadn't really blown up like game of thrones has been like massive and like a lot of the the i mean just regarding the fantasy elements but like the things that people really like is like the political intrigue and the things like that and like who is this mysterious character that's just come on and sort of like absolutely throws a spanner in everyone's work sometimes it it, uh really helps the villains of the piece like sort of uh, manipulating so because you know my character is this like young uneducated as i said i don't know he doesn't know who he is um he thinks he does but he's just sort of he's very very trusting very very naive sort of how i was when we first (laughs) did it 10 years ago um but I'm really uh, looking forward to getting getting back into it because, as Mark said, I'm the the only cast member from that production reprising their role, but you know from a very different perspective because that was my first job, and now this is like sort of ten years later coming to it with still hopefully being able to convincingly portray that sort of youth and naivety, but maybe I'm as a as an actor won't be so overwhelmed by oh I'm in a uh, a play in a proper theatre. <laughs>
0: A bit more circumspect, perhaps. Yeah,
1: the script has been heavily edited, but it's a, a lot of that has been the exposition, and my character isn't really involved in the historical exposition. My character's a lot more in, in sort of like plot-heavy scenes, so those haven't been so edited. So I'm like going back and sort of you know relearning my lines and things, and really enjoying how I'm able to uh, play them a lot better now because I've you know had a, I've had a lot more experience and I've d- played many different roles. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to bringing that sort of yeah experience and and knowledge to the performance, and like you know uh, working as uh, again with with these guys you know we've been working together for ten years now. I've, I mean I haven't been uh, with working with them as long as they've been working with each other, but since they started doing the the theatre company, I've been with them every step of the way, and it's it's really fascinating and enjoyable just to see how each production has gone from strength to strength and like sort of building upon the successes of the previous ones and. So yeah, as I said, we did do this play ten years ago, um, but the same people who saw that could come and see this, and they would have a totally different experience. The cast has been reduced from nine to six. You know, before it was it was a very dense, and I think that's what Mark and Holly were getting at when they were saying maybe it's not one of his necessarily strongest pieces. But that's not to say that our production isn't, because you know it's it's, it's really heavily edited. So it was like three-hour epic. Like those audiences got their their money's worth, and they like you know it was a a journey for them as well. And uh, so like the this version is a bit more streamlined. Not to say that we've you know cut out the heart of it or anything like that, but we've uh, I say we Mark, who's done a a wonderful uh, new adaptation, has really focused on moving the play forward. So you know keeping the historical context which is so important to it and sort of you know brings it to life and you know people will be sitting there thinking oh wow you know a lot of this stuff actually happened. This is real you know it's it's a a noble woman who she was the most powerful woman in norway in the 1500s which people don't you know you don't think of that time as as being when the the woman's in charge uh so we've still got all of that in it but yeah they might be able to make the last train home <laughs>
0: Tell me a little bit more about the editing process for this. I mean, as you say, you've done this before, so I'm assuming that's informed a lot of your editing this time around. But yes, how much of that is informed by not wanting to please modern audiences, but perhaps wanting to communicate better with them versus the practicalities of we just want this to be a little bit shorter and a little bit more accessible, perhaps?
3: yes it's, it's it's quite difficult to edit someone as as as, as famous as Ibsen I'm not, I'm not trying to to <laughs> dedicate his work you can tell that because this was a historically based play um I think he wanted to make sure that everything reflected history as was so for example there was a Swedish character Jens bielka who's a very important historical figure but to the play he's he's not that important at all um he's a Swedish commander that comes on um Act 4 act 5 and some of the exposition that that Jens Bielke gives uh, c- can be done away with. Um, so I think that in some respects he was trying to keep it faithful to his audience at the time who would have known who the minor historical characters in this play had been, but who were not necessarily vital to the, to the to smooth running of the play. Well, I've kind of trimmed around the edges in terms of just making sure that, that some of the characters. Einar Huck, Jens Bielka, um, Finn, that are not that crucial to the plot um uh, 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 dispensed with just because they don't necessarily add anything to um to this particular production. And uh, back in 2013, when we did do, we even we edited it in 2013 too, but um it was still a very long-running play, up to three hours a night. We had people crying at the end because of the plot, or maybe because they'd missed their last train home, as Joe said. <laughs> um, it was, um, it was quite, I mean, it was fun, it was fantastic, people did get their money's worth, but it was a very long heavy play. So we've trimmed around the edges to make it move a little bit faster. But the, the best thing about Ibsen is you don't need to change much at all, there's not that much in there that would not be um, understandable to a modern audience. So it, it was quite good and, re- and refreshing. And we're working with William Archer's translation too, um, and he was always fantastic at, at kind of summarising the the meaning the the Norwegian and translating it into English. So uh, we've benefited really from William Archer's translation because there's obviously not that many translations of his early works, of course, uh, where we are kind of playing with one or two. So we cut out some of the medieval singing um, because my voice in 2013 was was um, <laughs> not at its best when it was doing some medieval chanting. Um, I've mercifully cut that to save everybody's ears. I still remember some of the words to that song. <laughs> <laughs> but again, at the, at the time, it was kind of myth-making at the start of the play, um, where it's you don't need to go, you know, so hammer and nail with it um, in a, to a modern audience who will work out from context what's happening in, in the play. We're also quite lucky in the fact that there was a film. In fact, a few films have been made of this particular play because it is such an epic. Um, There's a 1979 edition of Lady Inga, um, which is fantastic. It's it's, it's been a fantastic piece of source material to use to be able to review how people have interpreted this play in the past as well. So we've been able to get a feel of the play because staging a production that's never been done, that you've never seen on stage before, you know, it's quite difficult. Um, You're not sure exactly if you're pitching it at the right you know, level. But seeing seeing the the films has really helped as well, because that's um, really helped inform the context of, of, of what we're doing.
0: I'm very disappointed we're not getting medieval singing and chanting. I think that's a real missed opportunity there. But, you know, for the sake of people getting home, we're out on the Isle of Dogs, I understand. So if I may, slightly tangentially, but I'm sure this is relevant to your work. Holly and Mark, you are both academics, I believe may i ask what area of academia that is and also how that feeds into your theatre making i'll I'll
3: come in there to say that whilst i am a doctor and i'm an academic i'm very much not an, an a literature academic i um my background is politics and political philosophy so i'm more interested in the mm. Aristotelian nature of, of playmaking rather than literature and of itself mm. um,
0: but if i may that tells me a lot about why you're keen on lady inga and these types of plays so i mean Please tell me more, because it seems like a good symbiosis.
3: Yeah, I mean, Lady Inga and the political machinations within that have been fascinating to me. So the history of the play, the Kalmar Union, the 400 years of darkness that Norway had suffered, and its union with Denmark at the time. So I, I, I'm i quite into the Scandinavian studies aspect of Lady Inga. And it's, 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 a, it's a really underserved period of history. It's not something you get in school or or college or even university unless you're a specialist at uh, in Scandinavian studies. So I think it's quite fascinating from that perspective, really, especially with the with being so immersed in it when we did go to Norway and did understand more about the real Lady Inga's life. It really brought it together. And also because we specialise in obscure pieces of theatre um, that, that centre the, the woman in literature. Um, it was fascinating, again, at the time, because as I think Joe alluded to previously, you don't often get um, leaders... Who are female at that time. And this was, a new, and obviously it was Ibsen saw something in that and thought actually this is a good chance to tell the story of how women in leadership were kind of punished, as it were, at the time. So it's a fascinating insight into to gender at, at, in the 1500s, um, whilst he was writing in obviously the um, 1800s. So yeah, it's fascinating for all those types of reasons. But for, for me personally, yes, yeah.
2: And I do think, I do think, Mark, that your background on the in in the political side of things does come through in some of our choices, but I think perhaps reflective of my role in the company, I do have a literature PhD, however, it is definitely not Ibsen. So my, uh, I wrote my PhD thesis just over 10 years ago now, and I looked at the, um, it was the narrative and effective role of abandoned spaces in contemporary British fiction. So my academic research in the area of literature was very much a crossover between literature and cultural geography and uh, and a lot of thinking about the, the agency and the politics of space as well. So whilst I... Wrote quite a lot uh, about representations of urban space in fiction. I also looked a lot at kind of spaces that had fallen out of um, and into disuse, disrepair, and what those kinds of uh, spaces offer in terms of narrative possibilities. So that was where I came from academically, so to speak. I've definitely moved away from that now. So I have quite a portfolio career. My current research and teaching uh, interests are i now specialize in career transition for phd students so my day job is helping uh, phd researchers to take their next steps to think about their think about their careers and what to do next but i do talk a lot about portfolio careers because whilst i've not kept my literature uh, roots in what we might think of as my day job around the edges and on the sides of it i definitely have uh, with things like um otty's daughter and also being involved uh, in the, the crescent theater company back in birmingham so whereas i feel like my identity as kind of a literature person used to be front and center it's now more around the peripheries of sort of my professional identity but it's uh it's still still very much there, kind of like the ghosts at Ostrot. It's uh, it's in it's uh, in the background, uh, still having that, that influence. From doing quite a few
0: of these podcasts now, I think this is in some ways the most interesting part of learning how people work and what their other areas of work are because that's, yeah, nearly everyone has other strings to their bow and it always informs in very surprising and interesting ways how they make theatre so thank you so we're nearly at the end now the question we always ask at the end is what was your first ever theatrical experience that can be watching something or being in something joe would you like to go first just because i'll guess go laughing so. yeah.
1: well i'm just thinking like so i, I went to a, a church school a private school a, a church in wales school and so my first sort of memories and experiences with the theatre were all to do with the nativity now I've played pretty much every part there is going, but the, the one I remember most distinctly is distinct. Well, there's two that are, that's really stick in my mind. And it was the very first one where I was a bumblebee, genuine bumblebee in the nativity. Uh, I think that was, you know, it was very little. and I had these big springy ears as a costume that I hated then, but now people would probably wear those to parties. And then there, there was my last year in that school when I actually played, it was like an epilogue with a grown-up Jesus, and it was my first ever solo, and they hadn't like done a solo. And then it was—I thought it was at that point when I had the the whole stage to myself, and you know, crying audience members with my beautiful singing of "I Am the Shepherd." I'm sure that's why they were crying. Uh, and I think I, I remember so distinctly—it was at that moment where I was like, "Oh yes, this is what I want to do forever. Uh, <laughs> this is what it is for me." <laughs>
0: Well, this is a running theme. People were crying at the end of your earlier performance and they're crying at the end of Lady I'm very emotive. I bring these
1: things out in people.
0: (laughs) There we go.
2: Found your calling.
1: Making people cry.
2: Um, I'll I'll go next. So the earliest theatre memory I have was when I was quite a young child, Uh, we used to go to pantomimes in Manchester as trips with my dad's work. And I was not very enamoured of Panto at all as a child because I seemed to have a real distaste for audience participation. And I could not understand why they never knew the person was behind them. And these these kinds of tropes were really lost on me as a small child. But what I do remember was, I think it was Aladdin we went to see in Manchester, uh, which was starring Paul Nicholas, who I think is probably quite well known for being in Jesus Christ Superstar in the 70s. And uh, he was inviting children from the audience to come onto the stage and tell the audience what they got for Christmas. And I thought, oh, I want to be part of this. And I put my hand up and I went up on stage. Um, And Paul Nicholas bent down to me and said, what's your name? And I I told him, said, what did you get for Christmas, Holly? And I said, I got a Casio keyboard. And then the audience went, oh, and then I said, but it doesn't work properly and then i remember the audience went ah oh, and and something magic happened in in me i think at that point in time of getting i said so little but got such a re- response from the audience there was something that shifted inside me of an audience responding and and expressing a feeling at something i'd said that made me that started this feeling in me that theater was a magical place and it's something that seemed so trivial at the time, I think was actually quite formative.
3: I have to confess that I've slept a lot and drank too much to remember (laughs) some of the earlier theatre performances that I might have seen. But if I may, I'd just reflect on um, what Holly was saying earlier about the fact that we were very lucky to have a, a drama teacher in Mrs Teasdale who took kids from a wig and comprehensive like me and Holly. And took us to see a doll's house with Anne-Marie Duff at Theatre Cluid, Amanda Donohoe Hedda Gobbler at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, and Ghosts, you know, about syphilis, <laughs> with Francis Tomalty at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. We are so lucky to have someone dedicated as a drama teacher that took us to so many, as it happens, Ibsens, and look, look, at us now thirty years later, producing Ibsens of our own in London. It's it's kind of a fantastic full circle, I think, and um, yeah, so thankful. <laughs>
0: I have to ask, is the drama teacher going to come to this performance or have they been to previous performances? Um, no. <laughs> I think,
2: I think it's, it's quite far to come from... Um, uh... it's,
3: it's, it's it's quite the round trip, especially for a, for a long Gibson. I think. But um, no, we will definitely be extending the invite
1: to come and see uh, because it's a, lovely, it's a lovely story to tell, really. And we've got our live stream as well, so if people watch the live stream there's no excuses this year guys (laughs) so um, we expect the the town of Wigan to be to be dialing in,
3: in on July 6th
0: that is a wonderful segue thank you so much that was literally the next thing I was going to say was if you can't make it to the space in person for whatever reason this is going to be live streamed on the 6th of July it will then be available on demand for two weeks after that Uh, But please do come and see Lady Inga on the 27th of June until the 8th of July. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to me and see you very soon.
1: Thank you so much for
2: having us. Thank you. Thanks, Bethany.